Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we would love to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids time and ministry. They're going out that back door there. Likewise, if you have middle school age kiddos, they are back there uh, as well in our back room, but we would love for you to be a part of what we have going on with our kiddos. Hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We have stepped into the season of Advent, and we are going to be taking a break uh, from the book of John for the next four weeks as we sort of focus our heart on all that this season means. For those of you that are here for the first time, we've actually been going verse by verse to the book of John for quite some time. It'll be almost, it'll be actually be a year the first January. And so uh, we've been walking through that book. We've made it into chapters eight, I think, and uh, we've got a ways to go, but we've been walking through that verse by verse, line by line. We're taking a little break um, for Advent. And for those of you that may have grown up in a church tradition that didn't talk a lot about Advent, it's it's just a season that leads us to Christmas. Historically, the word Advent actually comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And from the larger church picture, Advent was actually a season that led up to a church holiday called, or really a season called Epiphany, which is when the early church would baptize new believers. So in the first few centuries and later, they would baptize new believers on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas, celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Uh, both the birth of Christ and the incarnation where the embodiment of God is present in the person of Jesus, the John's baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Those things are celebrated at Epiphany, and Epiphany leads us all the way to Lent. And so Advent was actually a season that led up to Epiphany where new believers would be baptized. And there's two Advents that we celebrate and that we think about. There's the first Advent, which is the coming of Jesus, Christ the King, the embodiment of God in the form of infant Jesus that grew up and walked this earth and died sacrificially for our sins. But the second Advent that we live in is the Advent of anticipation, waiting for Jesus to come again, which means that Advent is not some isolated event in human history that took place 2,000 years ago where we all gather once a year for four Sundays and we celebrate Jesus as a baby lying in a manger somewhere, right? Advent is actually the celebration of God's inbreaking into humanity and the anticipation that God will return, that Jesus will come back. And so we live both in this incredible place of um, expectation and joy, and it is an incredible season, and it's an important season in the life of the church. And so we live in that place. And this is the first of those four Sundays. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the sort of prophetic promise names of Christ that are giving, given to the coming Messiah. And we're going to be looking at Jesus Emmanuel, Jesus Prince of Peace, Jesus Lord of Lords, and Jesus King of Kings, and exploring what Scripture says about those and what they hold for you and what they hold for me. Now, Advent is, interestingly enough, as I mentioned, it's a season that's built around the idea of the Incarnation. And the Incarnation is, it is God-made flesh, right? It is the embodiment of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And it is a radical inbreaking of heaven and earth. John, as those of you that have studied with us, calls it, talks about it as light piercing the darkness, that the incarnation is not just a bunch of people sitting around as an infant lies in a manger singing sweet songs, but Advent, the incarnation, is the radical breaking in of what is holy to what is utterly and totally sinful. That God in perfectness and his flawless, sinless beauty broke into dark, sinful humanity, pierced the darkness with the light of Christ, and changed the course of human history. The incarnation is a radical collision of heaven and earth. It is violent, 
right? And it is powerful. And it cannot be captured and reduced to songs and Christmas trees and shopping malls and credit cards. But Advent, this radical collision of heaven and earth, is what we celebrate, that God broke into our world to redeem and rescue us. And that's what these prophetic names that we're going to be looking at about the coming Messiah are. They are promises that God has made to humanity. And the first one that we're going to look at is Emmanuel. And it's sort of going to cover our entire scope of Advent because I do believe that it is the single greatest promise in all of human history that Jesus is Emmanuel. And we're going to look at that this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to... Matthew chapter 1, as we're going to explore this, the first of these names um, that we're going to be looking at over the past, over the next few weeks. As we do that, as we prepare our hearts, let's take a look at this little video that'll just orient our hearts to all that's unfolding um, this time of year. In all of scripture is wrapped up in the name Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we open your word, as we encounter you, that you would remind us of your incredible presence, that you are with us in the greatest moments, you are with us in the depths of despair, you're with us in the in-betweens, that God, you promise to never leave us nor forsake us, and so Lord, we trust you, that your promise, Emmanuel, God with us, carries us. Take a moment in your own heart and just pray that God would teach you something this morning, that he would open your heart that he would meet you where you are. Whatever you need to, to do, just pray that God would move in you this morning. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Pray that God would, would do something in them. We want to be a kid that is constantly praying for other people. Pray for your husband or your wife or your friend or maybe that person you just met or maybe someone you don't even know their name. Just pray that God would reveal himself to them this morning. Lord, as we celebrate this season, uh, we recognize that we're celebrating more than an event, a single event. We are celebrating the reality of who you are. That we are celebrating your character and your promise, Lord, that you have broken into our world. Lord, through the piercing cries of an infant, you have broken into our world. You have demonstrated what sinless life looks like. You have gone to the cross. You have died for our brokenness, God, and you have conquered death by raising your son. And your promise, Lord, is that you will come again, and you will make all things right, and you will wipe away every tear, and that you will redeem all brokenness. And, Lord, we hold to that anticipation as we celebrate Advent. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus, Emmanuel. Amen. So we're going to look over the next four weeks at these sort of powerful, promise-filled, prophetic names that the Messiah is to have. And the first one we're exploring is Jesus Emmanuel, which perhaps, as I really believe, is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. In fact, the the two names that we're going to see in our text today are really powerful promises that I think anchor our hearts not only in who God is in terms of his nature, but of what he has promised us. And we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we're going to hear a story that's going to be all too familiar this holiday season. Then we'll break it up and and take a little bit of a look at it. This is what Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 records about the birth of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was her husband, was a righteous man, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Then he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. So hopefully, if you've been in and out of a church or any portion of your life during this season, the story is familiar to you, right? So this is how the birth of Christ came about. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now that means they're engaged. They're not quite husband and wife yet, but it's very different. A betrothal is a very different relationship than our modern day engagements. Our modern day engagements have no binding real agreement to them until you are legally married. But in those days, a Jewish betrothal was as legally binding as a marriage. It was arranged by families to marry their children, and it was a legally binding agreement in which dowries and all kinds of things were exchanged. In fact, it was so legally binding that you often referred to each other as husband and wife, even though you weren't legally married. And during that period of betrothal, that sort of anticipation of marriage, there was no husband and wifing or any of those kind of things, if you know what I mean. It was just a legally, some of you don't, legally binding agreement, right? between this husband and this soon-to-be wife um, based on this sort of family's agreement to what was happening. Well, Joseph and Mary are in this betrothal uh, relationship. They are committed to each other, and Mary is found to be pregnant. And it was a scandal. It's just the way it is. And Joseph, we learn from Matthew, was a righteous man. He was a good man. And he knows that he had not husband and wife with his betrothal wife. And he figured that she broke the agreement, right? I mean, that's how that happens. And so he, being a good man, decides that he's not going to put Mary in a place where she would be publicly disgraced. And Matthew paints a really nice picture of it. But Deuteronomy 22 tells us that if Mary got pregnant by being with another man while she was betrothed to Joseph, both her and her gentleman caller were to be killed. They were to be stoned to death. And so Joseph is not only saving her from public disgrace, but literally from death. And so what he decides to do is because he knows he is not husband and wife, that he is going to just publicly, or not publicly, but privately divorce her. And that way no one has to know anything, um, and Mary isn't killed, and she's not disgraced. So Matthew makes a statement that Joseph was a good man. And so he says... I'm not going to do that to you. And as he's contemplating all these things that are going to happen, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So Joseph goes to bed thinking about this situation. An angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, which is a really cool term because 
Joseph was in the lineage of David. Uh, Matthew just paints that whole first picture as the genealogy of Jesus. And the reason Matthew does that is to show us that Jesus comes from the line of David. The, the prophecy said that the Messiah was going to come from the Davidic line. And the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and basically reminds him that he's part of that Davidic line. Joseph, son of David, meaning that you are part of this messianic promise. You are the line of David, right? Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. Um, because he will save the people from their sins. So he, she, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, listen, you're not going to understand all this, but you are the son of David, and the Holy Spirit is at work. In other words, the Messiah is coming, and it's going to take Joseph a little bit to understand all this, but the Holy Spirit shows up and says, this is part of God's incredible plan, and you are going to play a role in that because you are the son of of David. And that child that is with Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you are going to give that child the name Jesus, which means, um, well, which is actually um, a, a Hebrew, uh, a Greek take on the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Because you're going to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. Joshua, you will save people from their sins, right? And so this is the, the vision, the dream that Joseph has. And Joseph makes zero kind of arguments. He simply wakes up and he does exactly as the angel of the Lord had told him to do, right? He took her home and he made her his wife. And all this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what had been said to the prophet Isaiah, right, in chapter 7. The virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew makes a note in there and says, this took place to fulfill the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7. All right, because this miraculous, amazing thing is from God, and you will give him the name Emmanuel. Now, those of you that are paying attention are going, well, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, give him the name Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah says, give him the name Emmanuel. Like, what's happening? How come we don't have, you know, Emmanuel, Jesus, Emmanuel, Christ, or whatever? But the reality is, is that Emmanuel wasn't a name. It was how Jesus would be referenced. In fact, you heard Sean read our Advent candle. The prophet Isaiah multiple times reminds us the character, nature of God, and the things that we will know and we will be referenced to about Jesus, that he'll be mighty counselor, right? That he'll be prince of peace, that he will be all of these things. Well, Emmanuel is one of the things that God will be known as, that the Messiah will be known as. He will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. But his name that we would refer to him as would be Jesus, but he would be known as Emmanuel. He will be known as Mighty Counselor. He will be known as Prince of Peace. All these messianic tags, right? That's how we know the character of God. But you will give him the name Jesus. So Joseph does exactly that. He takes Mary home, right? He does exactly what the angel of the Lord says. He takes Mary home and he has no union with her, no husband and wife, until she gave birth to a son and they gave him the name Jesus. And Matthew sort of tells us this is how the picture of Jesus, the Messiah, came to be, right? It's the fulfillment of Scripture. What Matthew is doing is he is laying out the fulfillment of of scripture, that this is what Isaiah the prophet has said would happen 700 years previous to this moment. That Matthew is laying out for this incredible completion of God's promise, and it was happening in the most unlikely of ways through a young man and a young woman who had yet to even be married, 
right? Conceived by this virgin, given the name Jesus who saves, we would know him as Emmanuel, God with us. Now that story gets us to a whole lot of other places around Christmas time. We use it as a springboard to get to shepherds and to get to all the other things that happen around the holiday season. But when you really look at this text, I think it is packed with two of the most incredible promises in all of Scripture. And I know I say that a lot about things like this is the greatest thing in all of Scripture. That's because Scripture is really awesome. But like, these are really amazing promises that are wrapped up in these names of Jesus that are just sort of tucked in here in this account of the birth that I don't want us to miss this morning. And what I, I really want to do is pay attention to them because I think they, they shift the way that we think about not only just the season, but the way that we can think about God's constant presence and promise. The first one is wrapped up in the name Jesus, right? It's how we recognize and know the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this a dozen times, right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a messianic title, right? Well, Jesus, his name is actually the Greek form, as I mentioned, of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, he says, you are going to name this child that is not yours, but is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. You are going to give him the name Jesus or Joshua because it means the Lord saves. And what does the Lord save from? Well, the Lord will save the people from their sins. He tells Joseph exactly what God is going to do through this child. And you are giving the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. God will save the people from their sins. Now think about that promise for a moment coming to Joseph. Here he is about to divorce to save her life, his betrothed, arranged marriage wife. An angel of the Lord appears to him and says, no, you're going to take her home because God... Right, Yahweh is going to use this child that is a miraculous birth to deliver the entire world, to save the people from their sins. And you are going to name him the Lord saves. Because you are the son of David and the Messiah is coming from that line. And it's a really powerful promise because it reminds us that you and I, right, have a deep need to be saved. Now, I know that sounds like something we should all get, but if you've been raised in, in our Western church culture, or you've grown up in any kind of mainline traditional church, you may not have used that term a whole lot, right? For a lot of us to be saved is sort of maybe that radical Christian term, right, that the really fundamentalist churches use, and we don't use it a lot, mainly because I don't like what's associated with it. And what that means is that if I have to be saved, it means there's something that I have to be saved from. And most of our Western Christianity is not about being delivered from anything. It's about what I expect God to give me. But in order to understand that we need to be saved, we have to understand that we have a condition that we need to be saved from. And most of us don't want to deal with that reality. I actually have a very good friend who is a pastor, and he and I have had this conversation on multiple times. And he has told me on numerous occasions that he doesn't enjoy the term sin, sinner. And I said, well, that's great. I mean, I don't enjoy it either. He said, but here's the thing. I don't enjoy it because I don't necessarily think that people are sinful. I think that people make mistakes and do bad things, but I don't think people are sinful, and I surely don't think that all humanity is sinful. And I'm always so taken aback by that because here's the thing, and this is my perfect, perfectly unflawed logic. You don't get to rob a bank 
and then get arrested. And the cops come and they haul you off and they're about to throw you in jail. And you go, no, 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 I'm not a bank robber. Like, I'm really not. I just robbed it once. Like, I just robbed the bank. I mean, I'm not a bank robber. I just kind of robbed it. So we're good, right? I mean, if you sin once, you are a sinner. It is a flawless set of logic. But we don't like to deal with that reality. We don't like to deal with the reality that Scripture teaches that we are inherently deeply broken. That humanity, because sin is into the picture, is completely turned upside down. That we are enemies of God and that we are desperate and dying. Not that we are just sick or not that we have a little problem we've got to work around. But that Scripture teaches, and I've taught on this so many times. If you've come, you've heard me teach on this so many times. That Scripture teaches that we are deeply deeply dead. Dead. Not just sick or dead, we are dead and we are in this desperate need of a Savior. And God, in the promise of Jesus Christ, not only in that name, names are need to be saved and the name is a promise by which he will redeem us. I don't know how you could ever read Scripture and not come to a full understanding that we are dying in our sin and that we need a Savior. Whatever Western concept is out there trying to paint our kind of humanity as inherently pretty good with a few mistakes here and there is a bankrupt lie. We are completely and totally sinful to the core. And it's not a terrible thing. You want to know why? Because God sent a remedy. It's a terrible thing because sin is often leads to death. But there is a remedy that exists. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Joshua, the Lord saves. What will he save? He will save the world from their sins. Look, here's the truth. You have got a deep spiritual condition that is steeped in death. I do too. I am deeply sinful. The beauty of Advent is that God not only knew that, but he broke into our world, into humanity, through a perfect sinless life to redeem us from our sins. You have to understand before you can be saved that you have a condition that you need to be saved from, right? Our churches need to wake up and recognize that we are filled with people that don't want to acknowledge a reality which Scripture lays out so plainly, which is I need a Savior. I cannot do it on my own. I cannot dig my own way out. I cannot figure out how to get out of this mess myself. I cannot perform my way to salvation. I cannot please my way to God's grace and acceptance. I am dead and I need a savior and his name is Jesus. It's the first and probably the most profound promise that we see in this picture. But the second promise is the one that turns my life and my world upside down. because It's the one that I need on an every waking moment of my life kind of thing. And it's wrapped up in that promise that comes out of Isaiah, right? Matthew says all this happened to fulfill the prophet who said, Right? The virgin will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally means God with us. We know that. We've sung the songs. But I don't think most of us understand the reality of that promise. <clears throat> what it means that God, the God of the universe, the God that breathed life into our lungs, is literally, and I mean most literally, with us. That as followers of Christ, when we our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, and God is with us. Now, I think a lot of us love the idea, but we don't necessarily believe that to be true. We've had 
moments in our life when we felt desperately alone. We have felt moments in our life where we felt like God could be no farther away than he is at that moment. We have had loss. We have had hurt. We have had moments where we walked in the middle of mediocrity where it felt like no one cared. And the truth is, in those moments, we've wondered, maybe not said out loud, but we've wondered, where is God? We've wondered, is God here? I've had those moments. I've lived in those moments. The greatest promise in all of Scripture to me is that God is with us. And he's with us not just in those high moments, mountaintop laughter, everything's great. And he's with us not just in those deep, low valleys where we're experiencing deep loss and we need a comforter. But God is with us in those tall canyons of the in-between. And those moments of everyday life where we just feel like we're simply existing, God's presence is from the highest to the lowest in every moment in between, in every breath that we draw, God is with us. The reason this promise is so incredible to me is because I, sit, I spend so much of my time, so much of my life, right, trying to do this on my own. I mean, I give lip service to God's presence, right? God, I need you. God, I know you. God, I want you. But the truth is I act and live as if God is nowhere to be found until I reach a point where I just can't. And then I cry out. Scripture promises that we never have to reach that point, that God's presence is with us in every breath, in every blink, in every moment, in every second, which means whatever you're walking through on this very day, whatever fear or worry or anxiety you are steeped in, God is with you. He is not absent. He is not gone. He is in every single breath. He is at every single corner. Now, God doesn't always manifest himself in ways that we want to see. God doesn't always show up in these perfect ways. God often allows us to walk through hurt and heartache and stands beside us without giant, comforting, perfect answers and hugs. But God's presence never ceases. God has never left you. He has never forsaken you. He has never walked away from you. Advent is the incredible promise that God is present. And as I was going through this all week, all I could think about in my heart is, God, let me believe that. Like in this breath, in this moment, let me believe that with all that I am. Give me faith to trust that you are in this moment. Give me faith to see you. Give me faith to believe that even in what I'm standing in, God, you are here. And that has been my prayer all week. God, give me faith to believe that you are are present because you tell me that you are. You will call him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. He will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. Look, I don't know what your holidays are like. I don't know if they're wonderful times, if they're stressful times. You know, for a lot of us, our holidays are defined by what we think we should have and see on TV, right? The pictures. But the truth is the reality is somewhere in the middle there right? It's not the Lexus commercial where, you know, I say this each year, where people run out and there's a big bow on the car and it's snowing but no one's cold and the kids are perfect. <laughs> Everyone's smoking hot, right? Like, that's not <laughs> my life, right? The reality is there's loss in that picture, right? I mean, you know, I was at home at Thanksgiving and I was reminded during Thanksgiving that, you know, when I was 21, I lost my dad. Holidays are a mixed bag of both joy and 
really hard stuff. And it's not the picture that we all kind of want it to be measured up against. But the reality is, is that God's presence is what we celebrate. It's what we worship. It's what we anticipate. That he not only broke into our world, but his his promise that he is with us at every single breath until he comes again. Like, there is no place that we can go where he is not. And what we celebrate at Advent is that incredible promise that Jesus redeemed us from our sins and he never left us. He didn't do a one time from heaven, everybody's forgiven, and then navigate this thing to like come back, but his presence stays in the form of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That God redeems me and saves me and stays with me at every breath until I stand in front of the Father in glory. That's what we worship. Not shopping malls and credit card bills and stress and things like that, but the God that broke into our world to say, you are dying and I came to save you because I love you and I came for you and I will never leave you nor forsake you even in the deepest valleys, even in the tall canyons of the in-between. I am your God. This table we celebrate is really that incredible picture. It is the incredible picture of God's redemptive, amazing promise. Jesus gave this to his disciples as a reminder of his presence. He knew that there would be days and moments where they gather together and they go, what do we do now? And he says, when you gather together, you'll do this to remember me, to remember my presence is with you, to remember what I have given you and who you are. It's actually an incredible thing because it's a reminder of an incredible truth of God's presence. And I think it's powerfully fitting that we celebrate communion as we step into the promise that, God, you are, you are here. And it's not a throwaway term like, oh, God, be with you. No, God is with you. It is most literally the most beautiful statement in all of Scripture. That, God, I am not alone. And this table is that incredible promise. On the very night that Jesus gathered with his disciples, the night that he would be abandoned and betrayed, the night that everybody would run away, the night that he would scrub their feet, even the feet of that one that would betray him, Jesus gave thanks. And he took a loaf of bread and he said, This bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This table is the visible promise of God's presence. It tells us that it's not to be taken lightly, but we're supposed to investigate our heart and approach this table with raw authenticity and deep understanding of our own need. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ as an opportunity to be reminded of God's incredible presence. This morning, as always, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a super fancy word for saying, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, and you can eat it while stations down here and down in the back. And as we pray, I will invite our servers to come forward. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your incredible promise. We thank you that you are um, constant. You never walk out on us. You never maneuver away. You always are here. And Lord, if there's ever a promise I need in my own life, it's you, your presence. God, I just need to be reminded that you are with me. 
Lord, I pray that as we take this meal and share this time together, that we will be reminded of that ultimate incredible promise that God is with us, that the Lord saves, and that, God, that we would understand that this season is actually not just a, a tiny reminder of that, Lord. This season exists 52 weeks a year. This is the season of your promise, and it never ends. And so, God, remind us of that as we celebrate our deep need for a Savior, the fact that you came to redeem and that you saved us and that you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.